gracious and loving God, we thank you for the gift of a new week and a new day. We pray your blessing upon our study of Hebrews chapter three and four today and pray that we would learn something new about the grace that is always sustaining our life. We love you and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Therefore, brothers and sisters, holy partners and a heavenly calling, consider that Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. Yet Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses, just as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that would be spoken later. Christ, however, was faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if we hold firm the confidence and the pride that belongs to hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors put me to the test, though they had seen my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation, and I said, they always go astray in their hearts, and they have not known my ways. As in my anger, I swore, they will not enter my rest. Take care, brothers and sisters, that none of you may have an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partners of Christ, if only we hold our first confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Now, who were they who heard and yet were rebellious? Was it not all those who left Egypt under the leadership of Moses? But with whom was he angry 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, if not to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest is still open, let us take care that none of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For indeed, the good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said, as in my anger I swore they shall not enter my rest, though his works were finished at the foundation of the world. For in one place it speaks about the seventh day as follows, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this place it says, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains open for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he sets a certain day, today, saying through David much later in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. 
For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not speak later about another day. So then a Sabbath rest still remains for the people of God. For those who enter God's rest also cease from their labors as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort so that no one may fall through such disobedience as theirs. Indeed, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing until it divides soul from spirit, joints from marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And before him, no creature is hidden, but all are naked and laid bare to the eyes of the one to whom we must render an account. All right, thank you. What a wonderful reading. So I'm gonna go ahead, just offer a few notes and then we'll dive into our conversation. And chapter three begins by leaning into that question that is so central in the book of Hebrews, which is who are we? What is our identity as the people of God? And it starts out, therefore, brothers and sisters. So it has already been established that we are all brothers and sisters. We are connected, but that Jesus also is our brother. But now we're also told that we are partners in a heavenly calling, that there is a meaning to our life that we must explore together and that we are accountable to each other as we move towards this heavenly calling. And so when Hebrews talks about running with perseverance, the race set before us, he's not talking to Bunny as an individual or Annie as an individual, but to the collective, to the church, we are all running together. And so like any race, if, if we're running and Bunny falls down, we all kind of stop and we pick her up. We don't leave her behind. We're partners in this heavenly calling. There is accountability. There is a connection and we're all moving towards the goal together. Um, but then after establishing that we are partners, there's this whole bit about how Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses, how the builder of the house is uh, more of honor. Uh, I'm sorry that the house itself uh, and the builder of the house are, are not quite the same. And, and so uh, I think it's just important to say a few things about this in the context, right? The author of Hebrews has already established how Jesus is superior to angels. Uh, later on, uh, we'll talk about how the priesthood of Jesus is superior to that of the priests in the book of Leviticus, uh, the priests according to Aaron. And now we are elevating Jesus above Moses. There are just a few things I, I want to say about that, um, because this really seems to be a particular rhetorical device of this sermon. So remember that the community that this sermon was first written to, late first century, uh, these are uh, Jewish Christians mainly, many of whom uh, are not quite clear on who Jesus is and how Jesus is different from any of the other characters in their story, and many of whom might be tempted to kind of lapse back into the worship of the synagogue uh, where Jesus is not exalted as the one for whom and through whom all things were made. And so that is a particular uh, contextual piece we need to be aware of, that there is a, a very specific thing uh, that this author is doing uh, in writing to people who either don't understand 
uh, the manner in which Jesus is different and exalted above some of the things uh, the Old Testament prefigures or who are tempted to lapse back into synagogue worship. And so a case needs to be made for why baptism into Christ is different uh, than being um, a member of the synagogue. Um, the, the reason I point that out is just because in today's world, uh, we want to be very careful about all the language of Jesus is superior to this or better than this, uh, because there is, uh, in our context, right, different from the context in which this was written, uh, an appropriate fear of language that is supersessionist uh, or of replacement. And we have to be very careful in today's world about how we speak about such things. Uh, and so whenever we talk about the old covenant and the new covenant, uh, as Christians, we don't say that the new covenant replaces the old, as if God kind of wiped out um, the, the first project of Israel and Jesus replaces that. But rather, we talk about fulfillment, how in Jesus, uh, kind of working backwards, the old covenant is giving the fullness of its meaning. And we have to be very careful with our language, uh, especially around our Jewish brothers and sisters, uh, to make sure that we're not using replacement language. And uh, we talked about a lot of this when we studied Romans 9 through 11. Paul dances with this very delicately, even in his day, right? He talks about how uh, we are those grafted in and we are not the root. And so whenever we read such things, I think it's important to do two things, really three things, right? Uh, one is understand the context in which this Jesus superior to Moses is being born, right? To understand that context um, and what the concerns of the author were. Number two, to know our audience. So I'm not worried about um, uh, how I speak to fellow Christians, but if this were an interfaith dialogue with Jewish folk, we would need to handle that a little bit more delicately. But then three, uh, to unapologetically explore what the author is saying. And the author is saying that Jesus is the one for whom and through whom all things were made, uh, that Moses was always a servant who had this powerful ministry of pointing to the son. And that is something we are to understand as well. And so in verse five, uh, the author says that Moses, he was faithful in all God's house and that his ministry was to testify. Uh, that word is also translated witness, to bear witness uh, to the things that would be spoken of later. And many of the patristics uh, and the church fathers spoke of the Old Testament in this way. Paul often spoke of the Old Testament in this way, that Christ was hidden in the various um, scenes of the Old Testament, and it was all meant to point uh, to the great revelation to come later. And so we hold this tension where uh, it was meant to point, and these are the last days in which Jesus has come and been revealed, and the old covenant is a revelation of God with integrity in and of itself, and that God did do a particular thing with a particular people that is still deeply meaningful and valid today. And so after the author has established that Jesus uh, is superior or that Moses was meant to point to Jesus, our brother, the great high priest, who can empathize with our weaknesses, therefore, the author says in verse seven, therefore, in light of this, in light of what? In light of the fact that we are all partners in a heavenly calling and that 
uh, Christ has been revealed as our brother or sister kind of leading us in this heavenly race. Therefore, the author says, don't harden your heart. And of course, he is drawing off of the rebellion in the wilderness in the Old Testament. This is a story we've explored many times, right? God frees people from Egyptian slavery and leads them to the promised land. 40 years are spent in the wilderness, and it really is one disaster after another. And what is revealed there is not any failing, right, in Israel as a people, but really it is a deficit in human beings. It is the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, as Jesus told Peter, right? We are not able to be faithful on our own, and hence the need for a great high priest who can empathize with our weaknesses and be faithful on our behalf. And so the question is, what is the antidote? Do we need to try harder? Do we need to roll up our sleeves and be better Christians? Do we need to issue more exhortations and moralize more firmly? The answer is no. In chapter four, we're going to be told that the true power is entering into rest. And so whenever the author says, don't harden your hearts, what he's not saying is, come on, people, get your act together. He's not saying, come on, people, roll up your sleeves and finally use your willpower to overcome all those sinful urges that tripped our ancestors up. Rather, in verse 12, the exhortation is, take care that none of you have an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Basically, the antidote is not effort, but belief, not belief as an intellectual abstraction, but an actual trust that the God who raised Jesus from the dead is living and active and present in your life. Uh, I love what Thomas Merton says that the, the main commandment within Christianity is not to love. It's never been to love, but rather it is a prior commandment, he says that makes fulfilling that secondary commandment possible. It's the prior commandment to believe, to believe that one is loved, to believe that one is loved irrespective of one's worthiness at all. And so in a sense, what the author is saying with all this language of don't have an evil, unbelieving heart, I know it's a little shocking to hear it phrased that way, but basically believe that you're loved, right? You look back to the story of the people of Israel and ultimately, what they failed to trust in was that God loved them, that God saved them for a reason, and that God would provide. Whenever they got into trouble, with the one exception maybe of the golden calf, right? When they got into trouble, it wasn't their baser instincts coming out and being given free reign. It was a failure to actually trust that God would send bread from heaven, Right. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, trust that God has sent the true bread, the living bread from heaven to feed you eternally. Um, and so whenever he says, don't be hardened, that's what he means. And in verse 14, when he talks about holding first that confidence firmly to the end, this is a way of encouraging the members of his community to persevere, not in effort, but rather in belief. And so by the time we get to chapter four, the reminder is that the promise is still open. Contrary to how we might be tempted to read this, Hebrews is not trying to scare us or to warn us or to, to leave us trembling, thinking we need to do more. 
it's a reminder that the promise of rest is still open and that we are to take care and to pay attention. It's like the greatest gift that God has given the world. It is still there for the taken, you know, taking. So pay attention is essentially what the argument is. And there is a reminder that those who have not been able to enter into that rest in the past, it was only because they didn't actually trust that that promise was still open. Uh, as we get to the end of chapter four, I'm sorry, not the end of chapter four, but the end of this reading, um, there's some curious and funny things that are said. One is that God's works have been finished from the foundation of the world. What an interesting thing to say. Uh, there are two times in the Bible when God cries out, it is finished. One is in the gospel of John, Jesus on the cross, right before he dies, says it is finished. And in a sense, I think what that points to is that redemption, salvation, the forgiveness of sins is finished. And then, of course, on the seventh day in the book of Genesis, God, metaphorically speaking, cries out, it is finished and rests on the seventh day. And so creation, redemption, they are finished in the mind of God, basically meaning uh, we are to run the race with perseverance to the end, but we are to run knowing that we have a first place trophy before we even start. That's really the paradox of Hebrews, right? Run with all your might, but just know you've already won the race before you start. That, I think, is what we're called to believe. And it's not that different from things that Paul says, uh, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion by the day of Christ Jesus. Um, that's one of the things he says in Philippians, you know, keep on working. Uh, oh, he also says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God working in you, enabling you to will and to work according to his good pleasure. Basically, work it out as if it was all on you. But just know it's not all on you. It's already done, in fact. And so one of the things we have to discuss is what does this paradox actually mean? It's captured in verse 11. Let us therefore make every effort to enter into rest. Again, what a funny thing to say. Try as hard as you can to rest. Try as hard as you can to know that it's done. And the great paradox, I think, is that whenever we know that there's nothing we have to do, that opens up a capacity for this newfound creativity and love to spread through us. The problem with thinking that there is something we have to do is that the underlying emotion behind our behavior is fear. And so if you think that you have to save the planet, you might do all the right things, but if fear is the root driving your activism, you're just going to spread the energy of fear. If you think that you have to clean up your own life, you might make some good adjustments. But if fear is motivating those changes, it's poisoned at its root. And so what I think the author is trying to get at with this paradox is that, as it says in 1 John, love casts out all fear. What does it look like to do meaningful things, not from a place of fear, but from a place of love? And I would argue that the only way to act from a place of love is to know that we're first safe, right? Go down to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, safety. It is at the very foundation. Look at how your brain is wired. If you don't feel safe, you're not gonna do anything good, worthy, and creative. 
And so I think the author of Hebrews wants us to feel safe when he says, believe. Part of what he's saying is believe that you're safe. Believe that Jesus has guaranteed the outcome of this race before you even run it. And then in verse 12, we're told that the word of God is living and active, how it can judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, how no creature is hidden before God, how all are naked and laid bare to the eyes of the one to whom we must render an account. If the thought of being naked and laid bare before God scares you and fills you with terror, that's okay. However, that is a sign that there's still some more work that has to happen in your heart, right? Because the reason we are not to fear coming before God, the reason we approach the throne of grace with boldness is not because we've finally gotten it together. It's not because we're finally the people that previous generations have not been, right? We opened up our discussion before this teaching kind of joking about our lack of willpower, right? We will never consistently do the good we want to do, right? The reason we approach the throne of grace with boldness, the reason we're not scared to be naked and laid bare before God is because we know and we believe that what God sees is love. God sees his saved and redeemed sons and daughters. God sees partners in a heavenly calling. God sees Jesus's brothers and his sisters. And what does it mean to believe that? What do we call it in one word? We call it rest. Whenever the soul believes that, the soul is at rest. 